0: I want to talk a little bit about education and um, eventually law schools and your thoughts on the current state of law schools. But beginning with the current state of our public schools, there's been a tremendous amount of uh, fighting and rancor in Maine uh, and elsewhere, especially in Virginia over uh, the ideological direction of schools. It's the, these, um, the weird books that they want to have in school libraries. Um, it's transparency, uh, but also gender identity and introducing these ideas to increasingly young students. And one thing that we've noticed uh, in our reporting is that the ACLU has come out against parental rights and school transparency and in defense of the a lot of these, I guess, things you wouldn't have expected the ACLU to come out against, say, 15 years ago. Um, so what do you think has happened to the ACLU and what is the, what do you think is the path forward for conservatives asserting uh, their culture and their values in public schools?
1: Well, look, as a country, we've, we've always had debates about, um, culture and society, you know, um, uh, role of religion. Alternative lifestyles, abortion—we've um, always had hotly contested debates and battles over the social and cultural um, patina of our of our republic. Um, speaking as someone who who is both a, a conservative and a Catholic, I have always felt that. Um, the most important governing unit uh, in a society is the family. I think that is the most important governing unit because it's consistent with the natural order for that to be the most important governing unit. And so, when you're thinking about, um, you know, what rules and regulations and standards you want to impose or promote, um, I think you have to start by asking yourself, um, you know, is this something that the individual or the family can handle on their own um, that doesn't require state intervention? Is this something that's most appropriately handled by the family? Um, and, And then, you know, if there's an argument that it's not for some reason, then, then, it's fine. Um, you know, have a, have a discussion. But I, I agree with you. I, I, I think there is a, um, there is a, um, growing interest
0: in diminishing parental rights. I mean, you see it, especially with the transgender stuff. I mean, it seems like there's, I mean, in the, the things that we've encountered in reporting on the state, there's a specific case in, in Damascotta, uh, that I think you're aware of. Where, you know, it's, the question is literally, can school employees keep secrets from parents? Secrets that have the potential to have long lasting impacts on the child and uh, change a family dynamic permanently.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think there is definitely a growing, uh, effort to diminish parental rights. Um, I think it cuts across, um, I think it cuts across a lot of different areas. Um, uh i think it 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 affects education uh the way in which school boards and towns develop curricula the extent to which they encourage parental input into what they're doing the extent to which they are transparent about what those curricula are i think it does relate to issues of of sex and gender um You know, again, how much transparency do you want to have in terms of what schools are saying to the kids, what counseling they're giving them? Um, what conversations ought to be off the table and off limits for a school and properly be left to a family, right? I also think though, you see it in the context of the private sector. I mean, you know, technology, um, you know, is, um, Is, is very, a very powerful tool and children are exposed, um, to levels of, of content and cultural.
0: Instagram, TikTok. Yeah. uh, You know, the kids, the parents who are putting the iPad or the iPhone in their lap and letting, letting that, the babysitter. Well, when you, when you give, when you give
1: your kid a smartphone, you're literally creating an open door. Which allows anything in the world to enter, anything in the world to enter. Um, and, and the private sector hasn't been particularly good at giving parents tools to regulate and monitor, you know, what their children are capable of doing on their smartphones, on various streaming platforms. Um, so, so there are a lot of things that are coming down to bear on parental rights um some by the government by the state some by the private sector and you know both the state and the private sector i think have you know certainly the state has both a legal and a moral obligation to respect parental rights and i think the private sector has a moral obligation to do that too um and i am very concerned about where all this is headed um uh and um I think we we need to uh entrust parents with with the responsibility and authority um that's only natural for them to have.
0: Are you surprised about the way the ACLU is wading into this contest between students students rights and I guess the rights of um government employees at public schools. Um I mean, would you agree that the ACLU as an organization has um, transformed uh, over, over the last two decades?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what you're getting at, Steve, is that you've noticed a change in what the ACLU chooses to um, advocate on behalf of. And um, uh, I do think that... The ACLU has shifted its focus or attention in, in some significant ways over the past 25 or 30 years. When the ACLU first started, it was largely an institution driven by an interest in advancing uh, freedom of speech and expression. Um mostly political speech and expression but to some extent it went beyond that the ACLU slowly waded into other battles um reproductive rights voter id laws voter id laws transgender lifestyle um you know it it has kind of bled into those other areas it's not altogether clear to me why they have um some of it might be because the left
0: has changed its views on speech. I mean, you know, the ACLU's That's a very do, good point. You know, in these, the nineties, the liberals were the people who were worried about censorship. Yeah. You know, the, the battles around music. It was everything should be free speech, but all of a sudden they're the ones who are totally, uh, in support of censorship. Yes. Yeah, so on on th- social media or whatever. So what's, what's driving that change? Well, yeah. So the, so the old ACL, L- ACLU mantra, which was that
1: we'll defend anybody's freedom of speech gets a little bit complicated in a world where your constituency, which is largely the left, um, no longer really believes in freedom of speech. So what do you do as an institution? Well, if you're principled, you
0: have the principles no matter
1: what, right? Well, and you try to re-educate your constituency. Um, yes, that's one option. And then the other option is to uh, adapt to the changing culture of the left and to kind of slowly move away from that dogged... Defense of freedom of thought, freedom of speech, and to just go take up other battles, um, so that you can keep everybody employed and fat and happy. Um, you know, um, because I, I, I was surprised to see that um, that um, that the ACLU was pushing back on parental rights, because you know parental rights, in a way, is is really at the you know is really you know. Um, related to freedom of expression, In, the family is an institution that has, at its core, a set of thoughts, beliefs, um, predispositions, and when a f- when 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 a family decides that it's going to um, express certain content allow or disallow certain content structure a conversation about sensitive issues in a certain way or at a certain age that's really the family um um asserting its expressive rights as 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 a, as, a, as a human institution and the ACLU is not really defending that um which is curious and I don't know why, except to speculate that um they've taken up other causes that they that they think are are um better uh better for direct mail
0: in keeping in the theme of education uh obviously law schools are our elite colleges are very important in creating. Um, the people who are going to be our next Clarence Thomas is 20, 30 years from now. Um, you know that better than anybody having around the Federalist Society being intimately involved in, um, kind of shaping that educational culture. And, uh, I wonder if what, what's your take on the current state of higher ed right now? Cause it seems like every other day you hear a scandal like from Stanford where you have, you know, law students who are saying just outrageous things and, 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 you know, doing things and saying things that you think. Run completely contrary to the values that you would expect a, a law student to have, certainly 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and I know that there's, uh, there are some colleges I won't be too specific about, but there are some colleges I know of where, you know, there's only one conservative left and you know, they, the college doesn't have a plan to replace them with a conservative. The state of higher ed is horrible.
1: Absolutely positively horrible. Why? Why go to college? Why? Why? Why seek an education? Why seek a higher education? Um, obviously, to some extent, it's to build various skills, um, and you know that's very important if you want to earn a living and raise a family. But as Thomas Jefferson thought, the other reason to send someone to college, particularly liberal arts education, was basically to to cultivate a citizen who was going to appreciate democracy. That was his view. Teach people how to be free. Teach people how to be free. So if you're throwing your kids into colleges that basically um, tell them that um, we're we're not going to have a rigorous searching inquiry for the truth, certain issues or subjects are off-limits. We're going to harass, intimidate, uh, and embarrass you if you um, express certain viewpoints. Um, And and we're going to spend an inordinate amount of time on theoretical subjects um, that really don't sharpen your analytical abilities or other skills you might
0: need in the workaday world. Um,
1: You're paying a lot of money for garbage,
0: you, you really are, or your your child is taking on an enormous amount of debt that we now know can't just be snapped away by uh, nope. a president. no, it, <laughs> it's you.
1: no, no, you know, lunch lunch bucket Joe can't just <laughs> cancel everybody's debt. No, we've
0: we found that out much to the chagrin of some people. So um, we, we touched on the affirmative action uh, decision that came down. Um, just a, a question on that. What? So we we know that the state of higher ed, as you said, is terrible. What faith can someone have that this is a decision that's going to be respected by those institutions? Because Harvard was fairly duplicitous about this the entire time, denying that it happened, denying that they were racist against Asians. Then it came out that, well, yes, you were using these personality tests to very much be racist against Asians. So given how, uh um, I guess, dishonest they were throughout that entire uh, debate, what hope can we have that they're – going to respect this decision well what okay so two things let, let me take you back to the
1: broader higher ed issue and then take that okay. on because because I do think there's there's a couple of important things to be said here um, the market works okay and what all of these educational institutions are about to face it's going to happen in the next couple of years is what 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 people in the education world call the demographic cliff there's going to be a precipitous decline. In the number of college-age kids, and there's going to be a huge decline in the number of college applications because there just aren't as many children as there used to be of college age, um, right? This is the the result of a decline in in um, in birth rates. Yeah, we call it
0: demographic winter in Maine.
1: Okay, demographic winter. So this is the cliff that a lot of colleges are going to face. And a lot of these colleges are going to face very tough choices about what it is that that they want their children to have. Um, And, um, you know, the bottom line is um, there are going to be a decent number of schools that go out of business. And I'll make a bet. That if you're a school that um, creates a hostile environment, uh, if you're a school that um, doesn't have a reputation for really sharpening your kids' minds in a way that's open and civil, um, if you're an institution that doesn't place a premium on real skills, um, you might be in trouble. You're not only in trouble because of the overall demographic cliff, but you're in trouble because the people who were still having kids are relatively more mainstream and conservative, which means they're going to be looking. So where there is still a decent number of – Your customers are are moving right. Your customers are moving to the right. And so there are going to be a lot of institutions that are going to get up one morning in the educational space and they're going to say, wow, this demographic – has not only diminished, but it's shifted. And so if you want to be a successful institution of higher education over the next five to seven years, my bet would be on those that say, you know what, we're in the business of educating people to think freely and rigorously. We're not in the business of coddling college kids um, to not think freely and rigorously. And we're in the business of giving them sharp analytical skills and other skills they need to be successful in life. Um, we're not in the business of indoctrinating them. Those are the schools that are going to thrive and flourish and those that don't do that are going to be in distress
0: thankfully. So that sounds like a change that could have been uh, you know if it's if it's a demographic destiny it sounds like a change that could have already been in the works. So how does the affirmative action decision, change that? Do you see it uh, kind of accelerating that shift? Are some colleges going to be thankful that they have an excuse not to adhere to this liberal dogma? I don't know what the reaction
1: is going to be across
0: the university
1: system. My My suspicion is that most institutions are unhappy with the decision because most
0: institutions of higher learning are now in the business of political indoctrination rather than education. So I almost get the sense that some of them feel like their mission as a college is not education but they're a vehicle for social equality. Like they're they're supposed to be a tool that brings about racial equity or or what have you rather than simply educating people.
1: That may be that may be the case. Um I I'm not I'm not sure. Um I think I think that um I think that it's still too early to tell what's going to happen in the wake of these decisions. I think. I think the safe bet is to assume that there are going to be a lot of institutions of higher learning that are going to try to skirt around the issue and find a way to do what they were doing before. Um, uh, you know, look, I mean, you get a big decision like this one that says we have a colorblind constitution and these racial preferences are wrong, and you can't be doing this um you know certainly if someone comes along and says look i've i've developed certain character traits because of my race and those character traits have have you know like integrity and forbearance or or whatever and and those have made me able to succeed more you know you can look at that construct but you can't just you know um have people check in the race box yes you know Institutions, there'll be institutions that try to find ways around um, the decision, and, and this is what happens with every big pronouncement, right? So, so you know, when, when for example, the Supreme Court kind of opened the door to more education reform and school choice, teachers' unions said, okay, we'll we'll play death by a thousand paper cuts. We can have school choice and educational reform, but we're going to have umpteen regulations that make it really, really hard. And we're going to make sure that that individuals who want education reform in school choice have to engage in, you know, you know, um trench warfare litigation. There's, there's, a, there's a, a cap on charter charter schools and the commission yeah. is stacked with people who hate charter schools. Yeah. Yeah. So now, you know, in the school choice regime you're you're doing, you know, you know, piecemeal litigation here, there, and everywhere. And 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 that may well be what happens in the context of the Supreme Court's decision here and the you know, in, in relation to Racial preferences. Okay, there's this broad pronouncement, and now schools are going to see what how they can press the envelope, how they can evade it, and so you'll have
0: you'll have this sort of wave of secondary litigation to sort of sort all of this stuff out. So it could take a very long time for the full vision of a colorblind admission. Oh yeah. This this issue is far from over. How how long do you think it's gonna take for this principle to trickle into Faculty selections and even the, the the private corporate world. It's it's going to take a long time because there will be resistance
1: from um, the liberal elite, um, and and it will just take a long time. Now this is an interesting issue, right? Because um, here, polling data is pretty clear. Okay, I mean seventy plus percent of Americans do not like race conscious admissions, they do not like race-conscious hiring, Um, and so this is an area where, um, while liberal elite might press this issue, um, it is not a politically salient issue for for Democrats on the left, and in addition to that, it's one where, because of the court of public opinion, um,
0: litigation is a much more successful strategy. And it, it's not just I I don't think just the uh, elite liberals who are believing in this. I mean every superintendent in this state, every principal in this state believes that uh, color, the, a colorblind principle is racist. I mean it's it's is what they say when you listen to them. It's the the, uh, uh Abraham Kendi idea that you uh, you can't simply be not racist. You must be actively anti-racist. It's this kind of idea that is replete throughout. Means education. Uh, uh, all of the employees believe this. No, look. As with every issue,
1: there there are always two questions. One is what is legally required. And and really, in 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 terms of my own professional interests and background, that for me has always been the most important question: what is legally required? And the Fourteenth Amendment to the United States Constitution requires color blindness. Period. It's clear as day. Okay, so, so, whatever you may think, from the standpoint of prudence, policy, moral justification, intellectual force, the law says what it says, and, and that's what the law requires. So, so, colorblindness is what we have to live by as a country because that is what our constitution demands. Now, I can make Moral and intellectual arguments for why that's the right decision, and other people will disagree with that and make other 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 arguments. But, but this is this starts as a pure legal question, and a pretty clear one. And I'm glad the court has finally, um, had the opportunity to clarify it. Um, you know, uh, you can get to the normative issues, and I have no objection to people debating those. And you can have a fair debate about them. I mean, there's a lot of questions and, and, you know, Clarence Thomas brings this up at a number of decisions he's written over the years relating to racial preferences going way back where, you know, there's a fair question to be had as to whether, you know, racial preferences and quotas have helped or hurt the intended beneficiaries. It's kind of the same debate we had over the years regarding welfare. Okay. And, and, you know, it's, it's a debate worth having. Um, you know, uh, I think he, he makes some very, very powerful points regarding, um, you know, the, the, the practical problems associated with a system of race conscious decision making. Um, he doesn't trust the state to do those things because of his, um, experience with segregation. And he thinks that's a big problem. Um, but in any case, you can have that normative debate, but and, and I think we should as as a country. Um, uh, and, and I think we need to take very seriously the question, does this help or hurt the intended beneficiaries? Um, we can have a debate about that. But first and foremost, what people need to understand is, like it or not, our Constitution, our law, says that we are a colorblind society. And you, um, you either accept the rule of law or you don't. And and for me, that's the first order and most important question. And so what these schools need to do is they need to get in line and they need to stop using race as a basis for admissions. And ultimately, um, they need to stop using race as a basis for faculty hiring and other things. Um, We can still have a debate about whether our country should have a different legal standard, but that will require changing our constitution because our constitution is like it or not a colorblind constitution
0: period well leonard i, I appreciate you being so generous with your time i, I do want to hit on before we uh, uh get up and move out of the sun um how does somebody who is so uh, stridently conservative um, a very uh religious catholic how do you find yourself in maine in bar harbor of all places you know, one of the least religious states in the union. Things are obviously the trajectory politically of the state uh, is headed very much left. At a time when you, you could argue that the, the the other the opposite is happening in some other states. Um, so, what what drew you to the state? How did you make the decision to to relocate here? Well, we we have a, a long history here. Um, not as long as some people do, but but
1: we we started coming here 20 years ago. Uh we had a dear family friend who had a house here in on, on Mount Desert Island. Uh and she invited us to, to use her home when she wasn't there and we started coming for vacations. Um and of course we were first attracted by the beauty, right? I mean this is an incredible place. I mean I'm sure most Mainers have been here or are aware of it. Um, there 's few places in this country where beautiful mountains meet the ocean and it 's just spectacular, you know so uh, the beauty first attracted us and the peacefulness right um, you know but but as we started coming here more and more, we started realizing that the natural beauty wasn 't the most important attraction. Um, the real beauty here is its people. This little town that we live in is a is a wonderful place. Um the year-round residents are hard-working, thoughtful, generous, kind people who believe in who largely believe in 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 um you know, um just putting in a good a good hard day's work, raising their families. Um Believe me, they're not all conservatives. They're also not all liberals. Um, but they're good. They're good. They're good people. Shopkeepers on Main Street. Um, the folks who, um, work at construction at, and, and caretaking and landscaping and you know, the folks that work at the park. Um, these are, yeah. these are, these are hardworking good people. And we began to become very uh, attached to. Um the people more than just the beauty, more than just the natural beauty. And when COVID hit, uh we came up here to try to have a more stable lifestyle.
0: Of course, I think you and thirty thousand other people. <laughs> That's right.
1: Um Although we already had a bit
0: of a yeah, footprint yeah. here. Um I was trying I was trying to buy a house in Maine at the time and I was competing with all the people. Sorry, who didn't about, have sorry about that. Uh we had our house already. But um but
1: um but but you know after a few months of being here, we realized that we loved this place because of its people, because of the sense of community. Um, it was a small town that really represented a lot of what makes America great, um, and uh, and so we 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 were very drawn to it for that reason. And what we slowly began to realize is, unlike a big metropolis. Um, which we used to live in. Well, we and we still do a little bit, but we, we're here about ten months of the year. Unlike a big metropolis, um, this is a place where um, you can truly um, help people in need in a very direct way. You can ascertain what a community's needs are, what 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 a person's needs are, um, because there's not a lot of white noise. And because it's such a small community, uh, and so dependent upon everybody, you can, you can actually help to improve, um, people's, um, emotional, spiritual and, and, um, temporal condition. So, you know, we love, we love the church here. Um, it's a church that struggles, um, uh, geographically and, in terms of its its sheer numbers but um it's a place where we think um you know we can we can we can help um we love the town here um um and we want we want to be um you know productive and um helpful and in, in um creating a creating a a wonderful life for not only for ourselves but for people around us um so that's you know that's that's what um what brought us here. Um yes, the state um has its um you know um predispositions um politically. It 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 just passed a uh, uh, probably the most uh um, liberal abortion law in the country. Um I was very surprised to learn that not only is there now the opportunity for abortion up until birth, but that there's 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 no provision for parental notification or parental consent. I was I was shocked to see that.
0: They also they voted against uh, Democrats in the Senate voted against an amendment that would have prohibited the sale of uh, fetal remains from uh, from a from abortion. I heard that
1: I heard that, and so I, I'm 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 obviously surprised and shocked by that. But um but look you know um. How how do how do you how do you combat how do you combat that? Well, you know how how do you how do you deal with that? Well, you deal with that through compassion and love and civil discourse. And so, what we want to do while we're here in the state is, um, I'm not going to go down to Augusta, you know, pick at the state house. We're going to live the life we live with our children, and and we're going to you know try to help women in need and we're going to we're going to we're going to try to convince people civilly and through our own actions about the dignity and worth of human life from birth until natural death and we're going to pray for people and we're going to we're going to be there to help when we can um and and ultimately you know the hope is that people um you know people come around um to a you know to a different position. And 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 this takes me back to what you first started talking about, which was, you know, some of the protests that are taking place about abortion here and and elsewhere. Um you know, um uh all the Dobbs decision ultimately did was it
0: kicked this issue into the States. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Have any of them come by to thank you since Janet Mills signed LD 1619 into law? Because but for the Dobbs decision, there would be no uh, uh, legalization of late term abortion and a dramatic expansion of uh, uh, abortion in Maine. A court that interprets the law
1: according to its text and original meaning is sometimes going to be a blessing for what you believe in and is sometimes going to be a curse. I will always remember a wonderful funny story that Justice Nino Scalia used to tell. as you may know when the issue of flag burning came before the u s Supreme Court um he ended up voting uh to uh um strike down a law that prohibited burning the flag um Which surprised many people. Didn't surprise me, but it surprised many people. One person it surprised, I thought, I think was, was his wife. So the next morning after the decision came down, of course it was in all the newspapers and he comes down for breakfast and at his place at the table is um, the Washington Times. And of course the, the front page of the Times has the headline, you know, court strikes down. Flag burning prohibition, Scalia, you know, votes with majority. Assuming a picture of a burning flag also. Yes. And, and, and there is Mrs. Scalia at the stove, making his scrambled eggs, humming, it's a grand old flag. And, 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 you know, this is, and, and, and what I, he always used to tell this story to remind people that, um, the Constitution doesn't always give you what you want. Okay, the Constitution gives you um, uh, the freedom and space um, to make the republic what you want it to be. And Maine has chosen uh, a certain course, and I don't always agree politically with some of the things it's chosen to do, but it's chosen a certain course, and other states have chosen another course, and and Mainers should should um should be glad that we have a constitutional system that constrains the power of the national government and that gives it an opportunity to be what it wants to be. Um and, you know, we'll all work together in trying to um um you know reach reach common ground on the important issues of the day and where we don't, you know, one side will win and the disappointed side will lose and the disappointed side will continue to have the opportunity to civilly persuade the other side to try them. To and that's the great thing about um, our American system, self-government. And, you know, I've dedicated my, my life and a lot of my friends and people that surround us have dedicated their lives to trying to preserve that system. And, and, um, hopefully, uh, you know, over time, more and more people will see the value in, uh, in, uh, in that calling and, you know, for themselves.
0: Well, I mean, I think, I think that's a, a great place to leave it unless you've got anything else you'd like to touch on.
1: No, I just, again, Steve, I want to thank you, um, for what, um, for what MPI and, and the main wire does here in Maine. Um, it's, um, uh, I mean, look, I mean, you, you, you all obviously approach things from the free market center right perspective. Uh, and as you've pointed out, that's not always where Mainers end up. Um, but I hope that Mainers appreciate the fact that you're, you're creating dialogue that helps to ultimately search for the truth and, and hopefully helps people get to the right position on the issues of the day. Um, and so I, I, I appreciate what you're doing. And, um, again, that's why we're, um, you know, I'm um, happy to support your efforts.
0: Well, I, I appreciate that. And I, pr- I appreciate your support. And I would say that, you know, if there, if there was any, um, uh, liberal or progressive or communist who vehemently disagrees with everything they just heard, there's an open door to come on and have the, the same kind of an open conversation. Well, that's great. I'm glad you feel that way because that
1: ultimately is what, uh, uh, is what, uh, what our country stands for. So thank you, Steve. Really appreciate it. Thank you.